In the second series of the Villains podcast, I speak with Bernie Feynman. Born and raised in London's East End, he started his career as a boy in the auto trade. But growing up in the 1960s, Bernie invariably crossed paths with some of the notorious gangsters of the day, including the Cray brothers, all of whom wanted fast getaway cars, no questions asked. Although now, I'll be asking Bernie the questions. I'd like to welcome Bernie Feynman to the Villains Podcast. Full transparency. Bernie, we've known each other for quite a while. We've worked together. I directed you in Chop Shop London Garage. Two episodes, the best episodes. But of course, as you're here, but we haven't slept together. I want to make that quite clear. You are by trade a master mechanic. That's correct, yes. 61 years on the workshop floor. I came from the back streets and slums of the East End. And whatever you had to do, you had to do to earn a living. So everyone, all the kids at 10, 11 years of age, all went out to find a Saturday job. So of course you have to look around every Saturday, see who's hiring and, and whatever. And my local garage was Springfield Court Garage in uh, the East End of London. And I've always been mechanically minded. Not always did it work, but I've always been mechanically minded. So I went in and I said I'd like a Saturday job. And the governor's first words were, you make a cup of tea? I went, yeah. He said, right, get in there, clean the cups, make the tea. I'm 12 years old. The cups looked like they'd probably just been used for draining oil in. They were rank. I cleaned everything, bleached them, made them spotless, made all the guys tea, went round with a pencil and paper to find out who took sugar, and made tea for all the mechanics. They said, it's the best cup of tea they've ever had. I got the job. The average wage in those days, I'm talking about 1964, was about two to three pounds a week. I was getting paid two and sixpence from seven in the morning till seven at night on a Saturday. And two and sixpence was roughly, what, 25p of today's money. So I was learning. I was greasing the taxes up washing the engines, hoovering out the cabs. There was 120 cabs, which they had. And I enjoyed every minute. It's the, the dirt, the feel of the grease, being part of a team, and I loved it. I was at school. I was a dunce. But I had a learning difficulty. And in those days, they thought... But the learning difficulty which I had didn't exist. You were just a dunce. I couldn't read and write properly. Um, I was getting into fights all the time, out of frustration and anger, and eventually got expelled from the school. I'm 12 years old. The only other school would have me was Upton House in Hackney, which is a secondary modern school, basically for dunces. I went there, exactly the same problem. I used to look at a word and it would appear all jumbled up. And they didn't understand what it was in those days. So, again, in trouble, fighting, I got expelled. And my dad, bless him, God rest his soul, he was an ex-RSM, Royal Sergeant Major, big old boy. Well, he said, you've been expelled, no school love you, better find a bloody job. I'm now 13. I found a job in the local paper for Thomas and Draper, Rolls-Royce Bentley Jaguar garage as an apprentice come cleaner. I phoned up from the local phone box because we didn't have a phone, lied about my age, told them I was 15 and they sent me up for an interview. Now we lived in the East End Croydon was over three hours away by bus. I borrowed the money for the bus fare. My interview was at two o'clock. I left at ten o'clock in the morning. I got there, had the interview, I got the job. I'm now an official cleaner and apprentice at a Rolls-Royce garage. The only thing was, my start time was 7.30. So I had to leave at four o'clock in the morning. So every day, Monday to Friday, I got up at four o'clock in the morning, 
went to work and you had to wear a collar and tie under your boiler suit. And my first day there, I was introduced to the foreman. Mr. Critchett, his name was. Anglin Critchett. What a fucking name. Sounds like a Dickens name. It sounds like a dick. I don't know about a Dickens name. And he requested to tell me, right, it's your first day. Get a bucket, get the bleach, go and clean the toilets out. No gloves in those days. So you had raw bleach. You can imagine what that was doing to your hands. Boiling hot with a scrubbing brush and disinfectant. With your head and your hands down the toilets, scrubbing them. There's 25 mechanics there, plus the office staff. Um, there was no separate ladies and gents toilets, just the toilets. So you could be having a dump there. You could be having a woman having a dump next to you. Nice. So I cleaned the toilets out. I spent... From 7.30 in the morning, I had a break for a cup of tea and something. By about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I went to see the foreman. I said, I've finished it. OK, I'll come in in a minute. So I'm standing in there, proud as punch. It looked like brand new. And he come in and he looked round. He looked in the urinals. He went, very good. And then he flies and pissed on the floor. I'm 13 years of age. I'm an East End bloke, so what do I do? I cry or I do something about it. So I picked up the broom handle and smashed him straight in the fucking nose with it. Broke his nose. He's on the floor, swearing, blood everywhere, screaming. He wants to kill me. And I'm standing there like Bruce fucking Lee, holding his broom handle. And I thought, that's it, I'm going to get the, my first day there, I'm going to get the sack. Everyone coming in and wants to see what the commotion was. And we were both of us, him as well as me, taken in front of the MD, Mr. Draper himself, sitting behind his desk with his suit. He looks at me and he looks at the foreman with claret all down his front and his face. And he's effing and blinding in front of Mr. Draper. He wants to kill me this, that and the other. All Mr. Draper's done is do this. Get your cards. Fuck off. Not to me, but to him. Oh, I more than enough complaints about you. You're a bully. Fuck off. And I thought, it's my turn now, so I'm going to get a sack. <laughs> he looks at me and he's gone, you ever raise your hands again, I'll deal with you. Tomorrow, you're on the workshop floor. And... What does that mean? Being on I'm going to be a mechanic. I'm going to train. They put me under a master tech in those days were called a master mechanic who was probably about 50 years old in those days. Old school, old boy, didn't suffer fools gladly. Reluctantly, obviously, because he was told, not asked, to take me on as an apprentice. I had to be his third eye. Wherever he went, I went. And he made the rules. At half seven in the morning, you make sure you're here at seven. I get in at half seven. You're suited and booted the way you should be. And you make sure my breakfast is cooked. So at seven o'clock in the morning when I arrived, I made sure his plate was clean. I cooked him eggs, bacon and sausage, toast. Cleaned his pipe out. Repacked it with tobacco. And laid it all on the table for him when he came in. He used to march in, morning, put his boiler suit on, sit down, eat his breakfast. The moment he stood up, I used to have to take three sheets of Dre's toilet paper and stand outside the toilet while he had a dump and hand him the paper. We then went to work on the cars. And... He would never let me do anything for maybe about the first year. I had to watch every single nut and bolt which he did. We only had one ramp in the whole garage, so if you had a Rolls Royce with a transmission that had gone, you had it on jacks and you lifted it out on your chest, the two of you. And those things weighed about 550, 600 pounds. So it was like this. Put it down, strip it, build it. When you put it back, you use your arm and your legs, you lifted it up and you put it in. 
That's how you got strength. And I was doing well until one day he turned around and said to me, you've seen me doing contact points before. There's a silver shadow over there changed to contact points. Yes, sir. Oh, I had to call him sir. So I did it exactly the way he showed me. With both points adjusted with a micrometer and a feeler gauge. Change the condensers. Turn the engine over. Not once, but twice to check the gap was exact. At 14 thousandths of an inch, which it was. I then called him over. He came over and inspected it. Looked at it. Looked at me, smiled, and smacked me straight away around the face. And his words were, where's the fucking grease on the can? You had to put a tiny dab of grease on the can. So when it hit the points, it didn't wear the points head out or the can. And that's why I forgot the grease. I never forgot again. But I had wheel marks on my face for the rest of the day. I also put a bit of shame on him where every year at Thomas and Draper we had to sit an exam of what we learnt. My first exam I was terrified because I couldn't read and write properly. So I got 97% in the practical and zero in the theory. I then had to tell him exactly what was what. I'm dyslexic. This is what they called it. And I have a learning difficulty. And he had a bit of sympathy for me. His sister taught children with learning difficulties. And the sister lived with them as well. So once a week, instead of going home, I would stay at Ted's place. And his sister would try teach me how to read and write properly. It took five years. So until I was 19, I couldn't read and write properly. So every year after that, when I took my exams, I had to explain to them that I couldn't take the theory because of dyslexia. And every year I got 98%, 99%. Until after about five years, the one exam I took, I passed both of them, 97%, which is something to be very proud of. I'd now been there for nearly 11 years. Still an apprentice, because realistically, you never get your complete indentures there until you've done that amount of time. It was old school time. In between that time, I was introduced through an old pal of mine, to one of the Cray brothers. It was Ronnie, because I was asked to go to the blind beggar. And the way I was introduced was, Jimmy said, this is my mate Bernie, he's a good guy, he's EastEnder, he needs some work, and he's a bloody good mechanic, and he can keep his mouth shut. And all Ronnie says, have a drink. I said, well, I don't drink. And he looked at me and he said, have a drink. So I had a drink. I didn't like it, but I had a drink. And that's the first time I ever met Ronnie, Ronnie himself. I met Reggie for only a very, very short amount of time after that. Got introduced to, introduced to a few of the other guys. And they started feeding me work. And my parents, as I said, worked seven days a week. We lived in British Street in Bow in the high-rise flats, which was called Samuel Lewis Trust Flats, on the 18th floor. So any extra money would obviously be a great help. I was only earning a small amount of money, but it got busier and busier, and I'm doing two, three cars every weekend for them, and for their associates. I then met Barbara Windsor, Diana Dawes, Alan Lake, Barbara Windsor's first husband, Ronnie Knight, who, God rest his soul, recently died. And I was given great work, but 
I'm working outside. I couldn't afford a garage. So it was getting busy, and I said to my dad, I've got to find a little lock-up. And through friends of friends, we found a little lock-up garage in Bodney Road in Hackney, where I could do the cars undercover if the weather was shit. So I was earning a pound or two quid the weekend, which was half my parents' wages. Delivered the cars back to the Grave Morris or the Blind Beggar. Bang, paid straight away. Not how much, whack, how much is it? That's it. And I always got an extra pound to buy my dad tobacco and my mum some flowers. They were very good to me. Let me ask you about growing up in the East End. What was it like at that time? What were the living conditions like for you and your family? How would you describe that time period in that part of London, the 1950s and 60s? Depressing. And when I was younger, we were still on rationing, which means you were given a rationing book. You couldn't just go to a shop and buy stuff. You had only what you had in your rationing book. Two ounces of sugar, four eggs, five potatoes, ounce of chocolate, rationing, and everything else. On the black market, it was very expensive. It was depressing. My parents, as I say, had to work all the time. Uh, my dad, as I said, got us his old XRSM, or Sergeant Major. So when he came out of the army, he had to find a job. So he became a carpenter working at a factory. My mum, all of her working life from when she was 15 to when she was 73, was a master welder. She worked for Hanley Page Aircraft. And then after that, worked for de Havilland, who made the bombers. She used to weld the gun turrets, the fuselages. And she taught me to weld. My mother, a welder. What a job for a Jewish boy. Um, they were good parents. They were very strict, very hard. We didn't have the luxuries of, and obviously we're on the 18th floor, of a proper bathroom. So we had a tin bath, which is also slang for the word laugh, at the back of the scullery or the kitchen door. And every Friday night, we used to fill it with great big kettles of water, Mum would have the first bath. Dad would have the second. Oh, I've got a brother, by the way, who's an arsehole. He would have the third and I would have the last bath. But then also once a week we had our treat. We used to go to Hackney Baths. And there, inside Hackney Baths, was 25 different cubicles. Inside there was a bath. And one guy outside sitting there with a load of levers. And what you did is you paid the equivalent of today's money, 20p. You were given a clean towel and a bar of soap. And they would run the whole bath right the way up. And you put your own stuff in it and whatever. You were given 30 minutes. If after 30 minutes you haven't finished, the guy's timer pull the lever and it would all drain away. You wouldn't be able to do nothing about it. So you could be standing with a pair of soapy bollocks and then all the water's gone. And that's it. Um, but that was our treat. And from there, we would go to the bacon stall outside and have a bacon sandwich, nice sandwich for a Jewish boy, and um, a pint mug of bovril. That was our weekly treat. And I'll tell you something, it was heaven. How would you describe the environment you grew up in? Was it a mixed neighbourhood or predominantly Jewish? Where we were in the East End, in Samuel Lewis Flats, everyone had to mix. It was a total melting pot. We had Indian, we had Chinese, Jewish, Christian, Catholic, Muslim, black, white, anything. Everyone had to get on. No one had anything. There wasn't the hate which there was today. We, I'm not going to say everyone loved everyone, but we were in this melting pot. You had to get on. And if you didn't, you wouldn't survive. So everyone had to get on. We had to live together. Every Friday night, there used to be a boxing match. And from our window, you could see into the square, which was shaped like a 50 pence piece. And they used to bring the hardest guys out and have a match, bare knuckle, for a pound. So, when my parents thought I was asleep, 
I'd go to the window and peer out. My mother would go downstairs with the bucket and the sponge. My dad would go downstairs with his Airtex vest, take his glasses off, and he had the Brew Queen haircut and the little moustache. Tough old bastard. And they'd fight. And from upstairs on that floor with the window open, you could hear that as he hit the geezer. And the geezer went down, he didn't get up. And my mum and dad earned a pound. Now that pound got us in the market at four o'clock in the morning a fresh chicken. So we would have chicken and soup and you name it. And of course, Jewish chicken soup is Jewish panacea. It cures coughs, colds and scabby holes. So we lived on that for about three days. It was amazing. You cannot believe the tastes of that where previously for the whole week you'd have to live on half an egg, scrag ends, chicken fat and bread and butter, two ounces of cheese and whatever you can get your hands on. But one thing I will say, I was brought up with a lot of love. That's an important thing. A lot of values and a lot of values taught to me which I've taught to my kids. So everyone is the same. You're born the same, you die the same. Whether you get a millionaire or a pauper, you may eat exactly different foods. One may be eating scrap, the other one may be eating steak and champagne. It comes out the same way, it smells the same way. And it doesn't matter what you've got, when you die, you're both the same. We are all the same. So what the fuck is all this hate? You tell me. I don't know. What was the situation like at that time, the gangsters in the neighborhood? Did you see them? Did you feel their presence? What kind of control, if any, did they have? In the East End in general, I mean, since time immemorial, there's always been gangs, but some stronger than others. Primarily in the East End, it was ruled by the craze. There was other smaller type gangs before then. I mean, there was one totally up and coming gang called the Prings. There was Eddie and Michael Pring. And they came against the craze. They disappeared. And I knew Michael Pring pretty well. One day were there, the next day they disappeared. Don't know where they were. But people were in fear of the gangs. Now, my way of thinking, the only reason why you've got fear is if you've done something wrong. If you've tried to insult them, not even directly. And if you've got up to taking money from them, which is not yours. You don't steal from the hand that feeds you. Their principles were good and bad. They were tough, they were ruthless, they were vicious. But if you were good to them, they were good to you. I never had, in the three, four years I worked with them, one iota or problem. Why should I? If a car broke down that I did, they didn't chop my legs off and beat the shit out of me. It was one of those things. They dealt with their own law. You never raised your hands to a woman. You never ever mugged old people. And all of us were in the same predicament. None of us had anything. But they took me out of poverty. They helped myself and my family away from poverty because they gave me a life by letting me repair the cars, earning money, introducing me to other people, and I owe them a lot. I'm not going to say they were all good. I'm not going to say they're all bad. I saw some bad stuff. I saw quite a bit of bad stuff. And people say to me, why did you never ever talk about it? Well, why should I? Number one, I've never been asked number two. I've never been... And I'm proud to say a criminal myself. 
I said, I've, I've, I don't even, no, I haven't. I've never been in court for something bad. I've got no criminal record. But I ain't perfect. I've done loads of things in my life that I'm ashamed of, that I wish I could turn the clocks back. But I've never, ever gone out to deliberately hurt anyone. And I'll tell you a funny story. When I was doing the work for the craze, the landlord came down to see me one Saturday in my little lock-up, and I'm happy as a picking shit. It's pissing down with rain outside, but I'm happy. Right, because I'm earning money, and it's nice and dry. And my dad's helping me. And the landlord said, you've got some nice cars. I had a Jaguar there, and um, an old Ford Galaxy, and another car. You're doing really well. He says, I'm going to put your rent up. I went, well, am I making a small profit? You put my rent up, I'm doing no money. Well, I'm sorry, he said, I've got problems with other properties or whatever, I've got to put your rent up. So I delivered a car back to the beggar that night, that's right, and I saw Jimmy Nunn. And he said to me, what? what's the matter with you? He said, you've got a face like a smacked arse. And I said, I'm a bit pissed off. I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to do a lot of the cars anymore. Well, why? What's happened? So I explained the situation. He went to me, oh, why? Okay, what's your landlord's name? So I told him I didn't think any more of it. Doing, still working at Thomas and Draper during the week. Picked up two other cars from the beggar on Saturday morning with my dad. Done the cars, delivered them back. And saw Jimmy again. He said to me, how's things? He says, yeah, fine. I said, a bit funny today. I said, what do you mean? I said to him, the landlord came to see me and he said to me, how are you doing? I said, yeah, fine. He said to me, oh, he said, don't worry about the rent. He said, there's no rent. I said, well, you put my rent up. What do you mean there's no rent? Poor, he goes, these two big blokes come to see me and they explain the situation. You're the crazy mechanic. But I said to him, I've got to put your rent up because of all the other properties I've got, I've got problems getting the rent money. They've guaranteed I would get my rent money every Friday from the properties. But I had no rent. No one got hurt. No one got beaten up. But the moment it was put out that this landlord is in partnership with the craze, everyone paid up their rent on a Friday night. That is a businessman. That's the way to do a business. No one gets hurt, everyone's happy. And I stayed there for five years with not a fucking penny in rent. Were you first approached by the craze or associates to the craze about preparing the cars? What did you think you were being asked to do and, and why? I was asked to get the cars as clean and as serviceable as possible. What they were using them for was not my business. And I certainly wouldn't have the liberty to ask. But what was whispered in my shell like, that the cars would be used for transportation of people and also maybe in some robberies. The reason why the cars have not just got to be serviced, they've got to be 100%. A little story where that goes. Through them I was introduced to mad Frankie Fraser. All five foot four of him, with the most evil fucking eyes you've never seen in your life. His eyes are dead. He had spent 40 odd years of his life in prison. That is a fearful, I tell you, I had loose bowels even meeting him. And he says to me, I've been recommended to you. You're a good mechanic and I want some work done on the car. But it better not break down. I need it for a robbery. He gave me the car, which was an, a very, very old... Wolseley. Well, yeah, it was a Wolseley. wasn't the MG. No, it was a Wolseley. And I was told it's got to be fast. It better not break down. And he wants it perfect for the simple reason is, if you've even got a brake light out, the old bill will stop you because you look suspicious. And he said, one word of warning. If it breaks down, you, my friend, 
and end up in a coffin. Oh, thanks for that. I went through the car every nut and bolt, literally. Not just because of what he said. And I knew he'd had problems before because they'd done one robbery quite some time ago with one of his other drivers and the car broke down right outside Stoneton Police Station. And that's where they were. If that happened again, I probably would end up in a box. Anyway, he did the the business, as far as I can say, and uh, the car got in there and back with no problems. When you were tasked with preparing a car for the craze or anyone else, basically a getaway car, what were their expectations from a mechanical point of view that you needed to fulfil? The first thing was that they had to get the cars. I didn't have the money to supply them. They used to use a guy in Upper Clapton, and the place is still there, not with the same owners. So they would get the cars from this place, and I thought, what a piece of shit. Absolute fucking dogs. First thing we did with any of the cars to go over the bodywork to make sure it's all secure. Make a note of any panels that have got to be repainted, which would go into the body shop. You then put the car, jacked it up or put it on the ramp or whatever, all the wheels off. You visually inspected all the tyres. You visually inspected the suspension, the steering links, the brake pads, the brake discs, the brake shoes, hydraulics, axle oil leaks, security of the exhaust system, ensuring that the exhaust is not too rusty because it can snap at any time. Engine mounts, stabiliser bars. We then did a pressure test to check if the radiator was leaking. The hoses, and in those days, you changed automatically. The plugs, the points, the condenser, the leads. You then took the rocker box off and adjusted the tappets. You then checked the timing. You changed the oil, the oil filter, the air filter, and if it had it, a fuel filter. You checked the operation of all the lights and you double-checked them. In fact, you took the bulbs out to see if they were going black a little bit, which is showing on the way out. Because you could drive it out of the garage and bang, the bulb would go. Policeman spots it. You've got a bulb out, they're going to stop you for no reason. You can't afford that to happen. If in doubt, change the bulbs. Fan belts, any cracks, change them. Then went into the body shop to have the body work done. You then adjusted the tyre pressures. It was then washed, hoovered, valeted. But then the most important thing is where this comes in. You want to get rid of some weight. The weight which you don't need, which is a lot in the car, was a spare wheel. The fuel tanks were enormous. We used to take the fuel tanks out, cut them in half, weld them together. So we only had five gallons or six gallons in there instead of 30 gallons you know you're probably looking at about 10 to 12 stone in weight which you're saving anything you didn't need don't matter how hot it was they didn't need air conditioning the pumps weighed a ton you threw them away the back window mechanisms you threw them away anything can save weight sometimes the carpets came out then what you did is road tested the car and you made sure that everything was 100%, as far as you can do. And they knew that when we gave them a car like that, to the best of our ability, that everything was checked. Hand on heart, not one car that we prepared actually broke down. Not one. And I'm not going to say it couldn't, because it could. It can happen, anything mechanical can happen at any time. But as far as we could see, no. It was a lot of work to prepare the cars. They had to be fast, they had to stop perfectly, and they had to ensure that anything you can find mechanically to do, and to save weight and whatever, and reliability was the most important thing.
the other thing which sometimes happened is they would send the driver in who was working on the car to ensure the driver's seat was okay for his height. Because some were very, very tall and some were very, very small. The taller ones, if there wasn't enough rake on the seat, we had to make other gussets so the seat could go back further or recline down further. If they were very, very short, they wouldn't accept a cushion. We had to take the seat pad out and then redo it with foam so he could sit up higher. Stuff like that. Um, but we made good cars. But effectively, what you were trying to make was a car that was faster and with better handling than any police car. That's correct. The police, as such, had a budget where we were lucky. Whatever I required on the cars, even though I phoned in from the local phone box what we need, they supplied everything to us. I never had to lay out anything for parts. Whatever I wanted, I phoned a number and someone there took the registration number, picked up the parts for us and we put them into the car. So we had no restriction, whereas if we had a restriction, if it had a bad oil leak and it was ignored, it could, all the oil could run out, same could seize up. If it had that leak, you did it. You had no reason to tell us, oh, it's expensive, it's going to take time. It took time, you got it done. If it was expensive, they'd deal with that. So if you had two tyres gone, you would change four. If half the exhaust system was rotten, you changed the whole system. You couldn't afford putting new metal with old metal and welding it and having it snap off. So we were, weren't just cautious, we were over-cautious. But on the other hand, I'd had calls at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning to go and collect cars. Cars. Now, one Humber Super Snipe which we bought in um, was smashing at the front. Um, I'm not a body worker. I can strip things obviously and put them back. But we had on call 24 hours our body workers. And I used to obviously be in the mechanic there. But, and we took the front bumper off, the front valance, the slam panel, the grill. And inside the grill was a finger. <laughs> um, I don't know. I would, well, not, not our place to ask. So we... We moved the offending digit and threw it away and we paired the car and put it back together. Um, occasionally we were lucky enough that we had a phone. Um, so my number used to be, and I still remember it, I'm going back, I've got about 62 years, 806-4162 and 806 was Lower Clapton. 806, my God, must I remember that? Well, I ain't got Alzheimer's, not just yet. Thank God. Um, so we got, when the phone goes, it was right next to my dad's bed, my mum's bed. My dad's wake me up. Oi, boys are on the phone. That's all I used to get. My dad knew what it was about. He knew what it was about. The most important thing is it brought in money for the family. Got a car, and this is what was said. Jaguar, or whatever it was, registration number, where it is, get it done, I need it tomorrow. So, I was lucky, because obviously I had the keys as well, the Springfield Court garage. The taxi garage, I was still working there, ten years later, but not building engines there by then and earning good money so I'm earning double bubble go back to the garage go and get the recovery truck because the driver's door won't won't shut you can't drive with a fucking door so I'll get there check the car out and it's at Hackney Marshes but the trying to shut the door it's, that's it it's jammed tied it all up took it back to the garage phoned the body worker because obviously you'd have to jack out the front A panel to see why, the reason why the door won't shut. So we're checking in, checking in, and we really can't see anything. It's got to be a latch problem. So we took the trim out, took the latch out. <laughs> a piece of what appeared to be a skull with 
some hair in it, which was jacked into the latch. How did you think it got there? <laughs> the moment we took the latch out, door was closing fine. So we had to chisel this thing out. <laughs> the initial thought from one of the bodywork guys was, fuck me, mate, someone's head's been in that slammer. And it looked like, I don't know. I don't know. I guess what other reason would, I guess what other reason would it end up there? Did you often find any weapon left behind? Crowbars, baseball bats, a one-time a shotgun wrapped up in an old blanket, coshes. For when we were all arrested, the day that the craze got arrested, um, we were asked what we saw because they arrested all of us at Downs Road Garage. Didn't see anyone, I'm a mechanic. What was in the boot of the car? Well, spare wheel. So this went on for quite a few hours. We didn't do anything wrong. We were mechanics. And what we saw is our business. I wouldn't give a fuck what happened. I would never tell on anyone. It's no wonder, all these years later, There's a million things I did see and a million things I didn't see and quite a few things I wish I didn't see. My other little job was I used to get a phone call and the arch in Cudworth Street had lights, electric lights and I was asked and given 10 bob to go down and remove the lights, take the bulbs out. I don't know what for. So it was an arch. It's still there today. It's a scary looking place. I'm just asked to take all the bulbs out, which I did. So I got my car, which I was <coughs> loaned to drive now and again. And I know I didn't even have a license at the time. And just took the uh, bulbs out of the arches. And from what I hear, this was the place where some of the time that the naughty boys who'd got the wrong side of some of the firm were taken and they were given their due diligence. Hence the reason, obviously, why. There's still arches off of Cudworth Street which were rented by the craze, which are still there. And I'd been back there Month or about six months ago or so to see some old faces there that I know. But they were good times. They were hard times. And if you ask me now if I would ever change them, no. The only thing I would ever change is if, if I ever could is have my parents back. Uh, my dad was my hero. Yeah, he was definitely my hero. As I said, he knew exactly what I was doing. He knew what the craze were about. It wasn't our business. That's what you learn to you mind your own business. But as I said, they were good to me. They were very good to me. And I saying I will never forget. During your time as a mechanic, especially when you were preparing these getaway cars, what kind of mechanical innovations did you think you might have made either accidentally or on purpose? Uh, uh, because obviously the relationship between police cars and getaway cars, one always has to be faster than the other. I should have actually stated that before, that not a lot of the things on the car we left as bog standard. If it was like a no expense spare job, particularly with a Jaguar or high-end car we would generally take the heads off polish and port them which gives you better gas flow gives you better aspiration 
gives you better detonation when inside. We would uprate all the carburettors. I mean, really, we were tuners. So if your car had one and a quarter inch SUs on it, we would fit one and a half inch SUs. Yes, it would use more fuel, but you would get a lot more power. It's like chip tuning a car today, where you deal with the electronic side. We were mechanics, so we dealt with the mechanical side. We made them lighter. We made the engines more powerful. A lot of the times, if they were manual cars, um, and there's one very, very simple way of checking a clutch on a car, how worn it is. You put your foot on the clutch, put it in gear, and lift it up, and you feel where the bite is. If the bite is halfway or three-quarters of the way up, that clutch is on the way out. The bite should be very close to the bottom, about an inch up. So if it needed that, the first thing we would do is take the transmission out, take the clutch out, have the flywheel skimmed and lightened, and see if you could purchase a heavy-duty clutch. We used to be able to go to a company in Quickerwood called Ferraris Piston Services. They used to reline brake shoes, and it's a similar material to what is on a clutch, which in those days was asbestos. So sometimes, and if you knew the right people in there, and a little palm was greased, a heavier duty lining can be put on a standard clutch plate and therefore give you much, much firmer bite, which would obviously engage the gear quicker, which would then transmit the power through the prop shaft to the differential. And that was the difference between biting and really biting. So, of course, you had the power, which would alter on the engine, and the bite and the performance of the clutch also with the lighter flywheel. We were once asked to do something very, very mad. Uh, it was on an old 105E Anglia going back to 1960-61. One of the guys at the Blind Beggar wanted something different. No expense spared. So they used to have a little 1200cc four-cylinder engine, which wouldn't pull the skin off a fucking rice pudding. Gutless. And in the garage, we had brilliant fabricators. They were real metal men. And if you couldn't get it, they could make it. They were proper welders and panel beaters. You could alter the shape completely of a panel. Not with machines, with the hands, with panel beating. You know, old school, done properly. So they wanted, they wanted a big engine in this little car. So V8 engines were very, very difficult to find. So we obtained, through the firm, a... Quotation, that was a quotation mark you did in the Yeah, yeah, quotation mark. Sort of. Obtained is the word. A Ford Corsair car, complete with the V6 engine, which was very, very nice, two litre. And we transplanted that into the old 105E Anglia with the gearbox as well. And eventually the differential. A lot of fabrication work, similar to a chop shop. And that thing would move. You could spin the wheels in those days but they, he wanted the car to look like a wolf in sheep's clothing. We earned a lot of money. I mean, I was paid to do that £50, which is like five grand a today's money. That was just for me. That was without the mechanics and everything else. The person that wanted that done was very, very well known, very, very well known. But I won't mention the name. You didn't end up getting caught using that car in any way? No, he never got caught. I'd love to know where that car is now. It was beautiful. It was sprayed 
black. The car was green. All the interior was trimmed in black. And in those days, you could swap seats. Um, we found an old Alfa Romeo with big padded seats. We made frames for that to go into it. No power steering. Only a four-speed gearbox. But fuck did that thing go. It was frightening. But it held the road literally solid. Now, we, the cars those days had rubber band wheels. You know, the thin wheels. Forget Today, you get wheels. You didn't have the luxury of getting those because they never ever made them. So what we did was we banded the wheels. We made two wheels out of one. We cut sensors out of one and another, welded the two together. And then people who knew people dealt with an industrial tyre place. I'm not sure if it was here or abroad. And we had tyres made for this car. They were racing tyres, like slicks. And it looked amazing. I mean, <laughs> they, they looked similar to the 6J wheels on the Lotus Cortina. They were dished. But they were about that wide. And it was unheard of. It looked the business. Did you ever hear, in retrospect, any getaway chases with the police with cars that you had prepared? The only one I heard about was the one for Frankie Fraser, that he was chasing that car. Um, he went with his driver to Hatton Garden because they were going, as he described it, for a tomfoolery. That was it. He was going out to get some tomfoolery, jewellery. And that's why he said to me, it's got to be fast and quick, or you, son, will end up in a foggy coffin. Nice. But, yeah, there was, there was a chase for that. What car the police were using, I don't know. Because in those days, they had some big stuff. They had the old Wolseley 6110, straight six-cylinder engine, 2.5. And they, I mean, they weighed about two and a half tonne. And... They had the old, obviously, the minor thousands, which was the old noddy cars. They had the Bedford Dormobiles with the old police light on the top. So I don't know what car they chased them in, but I know they didn't get them. That was the important factor, because I'm still here to tell the story. Let me ask you a question. If you had to create the perfect getaway car, what would it be? Build that car from your imagination. If I was to build that car... It wouldn't just be a stock car. It wouldn't be a stock car. I would use the body of a car which I love. I wouldn't bother getting a two-door. It would have to be a four-door. It mustn't be too big. It mustn't be too small. I would... I would use a Mark II Jaguar. I would have the engine redone to 4.7 litre overboard. I have the crank reground lightened competition flywheel. No, with a torque converter, automatic. I'd have the head all redone with all the valves. Change all the fuel injection system, aluminium radiator, modified front frame off of the E-Type. I'd use a TalkFly 8 gearbox from the Jensen Interceptor and the same differential. It would be a lot of work, but I would make it as something which would be very, very fast something which would be reliable, which would give you superb road handling and cornering, but also give you reliability. I've built 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jaguar engines in my life. And I've been proud of every one of them. I, I love doing them. I still love doing them. But I would build that engine by hand. The boring and stuff I would have done. There's a place in Essex who are still there. Good Maze Engineering. Old school, those guys. They know what they're doing. And from what I know about the engines, I know what their failings are, and I would make sure that they wouldn't fail. That is what I would use. It's quite a heavy car, but there's a lot of things can be lightened. It would look beautiful. But it would be an evil bastard. It would, it would move. I mean move. It would put most new cars to shame. Stick your ECU and all of that. I'd use the throttle bodies off a motorcycle. So that would be your ideal getaway car? Yes. It's a geezer's car. Not one of these plastic pieces of crap which you got today. Nah. Want a bit of metal around you. Nice car. Always loved them. I've only ever owned, not a real old Jaguar, 1976. I had an XJ Coupe, which was a two-door, 4.2. Beautiful car. I only sold it because we were moving house and obviously I needed as much money as I could. It was black and it had tan leather interior. It was a fabulous car. And that engine purred. Absolutely. But talking about Jaguars, I made, I'm going back to 1990, the only one of its type in the world of Jaguar 4.2 four-door convertible. I've still got the pictures of it. I'd done it one Saturday and Sunday with the guys in the garage. It was an old scrapper and I wanted to do something different. And my dear wife, I bought it home after we'd done it. I gave it to her and she drove it around for a week and she loved it. And I took it back to the garage for something and that's the last she ever saw it. One of my very famous clients, uh, uh, an Arab prince, Loved it and bought it, and we built five more. I never ever built another one. That was a bloody waste. I've done some interesting stuff. You've been a master mechanic for many decades now. 61 years. I only look 21, but I've had a fucking hard life. I would say I've probably worked on 98% of all the cars on the road today. Including Ferraris, Lamborghinis, Mercedes-Benz, Jaguar, Ford and Vauxhall. You either love them or you hate them. But I love BMWs. I'm a BMW man. You know what BMW stands for? Bring mechanic with. Always <laughs> fucking bring. They're the one car which is even more annoying than the mother-in-law can be. Because the moment you get down or low, two volts, it throws up all forms of fault codes. Traction control, ABS, this, that and the other. Unbelievable. And the moment the voltage is back up again, they disappear. Or you scan code them. Or disconnect the battery for 10 seconds, put it back and they're gone. I think it's all down to the Germans. They build the car deliberately, I know. We'll fucking annoy those English. They've got a thing which is in, on the battery called an IBS. Now, IBS can stand for Irritable Bowel Syndrome or Intelligent Battery System. And it's supposed to regulate the charge. Well, the fucking things break down and they keep on draining the battery. So, what a BMW do? You disconnect it. As simple as that. And he stops doing it. Why do people do things? It infuriates me. I think that's called over-engineering. 
It's called over, over, over sewing, being a pain in the fucking arse. That's what it's been. Oh, I'd, 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 I'd have been the same one with some of them engineers. I'll give them Vorschwung Nick, up your arse. Tell me about the relationship between the police and getaway cars. The police don't like anyone who can upsurge them or make something which is better than what they got. As I said before, the unfortunate thing is the police have a budget on cars. Now, I've worked for the police. I worked with a company who used to do all the recovery on the accident and breakdowns of the police cars. I would go to various police stations across the whole of London to repair some of the police cars in the police stations. I was well known, not just I did chop shop or whatever. Um, and occasionally when I was at Scotland Yard and you were doing a commander's car, they wanted a little bit of extra power, but having all the correct equipment, which I did on laptop, you could modify certain things. The police are very, very good drivers. I'll give them that. Once when I was at the training college in Hendon, Eridgerome Road, the garage manager there and I became very good friends. He says to me, would you fancy having a go at the skid pan? Yeah, I'll try anything once. <laughs> I think I was only 10 seconds and his words were, stop the fucking car, get out and never get in here again. <laughs> I made a total balls up. I then sat in the passenger seat and watched him. The way, unbelievable the way they handle a car. I'm just an ordinary driver, but <laughs> I've never. I crap my. You've got no control, and I'm braking where I'm supposed to be steering, and steering where I'm supposed to be braking. <laughs> I thought it was a fucking heart attack. So I never ever went on that again. But we still remain friends. That was. Interesting stuff, but the, the way that the drivers are taught, and I've been in high-speed chase in the back of police cars. Not that I've done anything wrong, but as I was allowed to go on a chase with them. Unbelievable. They handle the cars. What I don't understand, with some of the police, they have these big, powerful 5 Series BMWs, whether it's a 3... 0.5 or 3 litre diesel twin turbos. And you've got a little 16 year old oik in a fucking 1 litre Corsa and they run ring round them. And I think it's all due to how big your cojones, well your cojones are your balls, how big your balls are. When you see these kids, the way they drive a car, some of them 15 years of age, it's frightening. They've got no fear. No fear. But the police are obviously taught to drive correctly. It's a lot of difference. But I can't understand that how these kids can get away with it. And they've got like standard one litre against a 3.5. <sighs> I think the police should be given more... Instead of less jurisdiction more scope they can do certain things you mustn't go here you mustn't do this in america they want to chase end the chase they're taught to hit the corner of the car and flip it to end the chase never ever seen it done here and they're equipped in america with the crash bars you you try and get away from me i'll stop you that's the way to do it. I think if they had more jurisdictions to do things like that, there would be less serious police chases. I feel sorry for the police sometimes. It doesn't make their job any easier catching the criminals. How would you summarise your time in the automotive trade? Enjoyable, informative, dirty, smelly, filthy, hard work. But one thing my dad always said to me, if you can work with your hands... You'll never starve. It's a trade which I used to be proud of. All you hear today is, this garage has ripped me off. 
that garage has ripped me off. It's a shame. And the trouble is as well, young people today don't want to get involved in it. It's an honourable profession. If you do the profession honourably. If you do it because you're a thieving little fuck and you rip people off, you're going to hate it. Because every day is a challenge and one day you're going to get caught. But if you do it honourably, it's the most fantastic feeling to have built an engine by hand that was previously running bad, overheating, knocking and whatever. And hearing that start on the key, that still gives me a kick. It's not only knowing you've done it right. It's also knowing you haven't fucked it up. Thank you, Bernie. The original motor mouth, Bernie Feynman. I appreciate your time today. No problem, with pleasure. That was a one-hit wonder, wasn't it? That's what my wife says. <laughs> I don't know what she means. Thank you for listening to the Villains Podcast. There'll be more episodes coming soon and an exciting announcement for a new Villains channel featuring exclusive interviews with some of the world's most notorious criminals. In the meantime, you can subscribe to my podcast through buzzsprout.com. All donations are welcomed, of course. Thank you. <laughs>